It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Jan Hori, hello. Oh my God, Oprah, I'm so happy to talk to you again. Thank you so oh. much for having me. I am excited because your new book, Stolen Focus, why you, I was thinking why we can't pay attention and how to think <laughs> deeply again. It's another New York Times bestseller, hooray for you. And oh. I think that this book is exactly what the world needs right now because we're all, all of us are feeling, as I turned every page, I went, oh yeah, okay, that's me, that's me. Feeling this lack of focus, <laughs> like you say. It feels like it's being stolen. But first I wanna tell everybody listening that we're not gonna get to this entire wonderful book that is going to bring great insight to you about your life. We're not gonna get to all of it. I can't, I can't do it. So <laughs> I want you to pick up this book and dive in and go way deep into the forces that are working against us and our attention, okay? Because this conversation is just gonna be the tip of the iceberg. So I hope everybody actually buys the book and really thinks about and learns from the experiences about the flow, actually, of this book provides for everybody. And I promise you, I promise you, I do not recommend books that I don't believe in myself and haven't benefited from myself. And I promise you, it will be worth your time and certainly worth your focus. So let's get started, okay? <laughs> I can um, die happy now you've said that, that's <laughs> it, my life is complete. <laughs> I want people to, to, to read it. Why did you decide to collect our, to, to actually attack our collective lack of focus? Why did you decide to attack this in this moment? There were a few reasons, but one of them was really personal. You know, I could feel that my own ability to focus and pay attention was getting worse. W with each year that passed, it felt like things that required deep focus that are so important to my sense of self, like reading a book, watching a movie, having proper deep conversations, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? Like I could mm -hmm, still do mm -hmm. them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I could see this was happening to so many of the people around me, particularly a lot of the young people that I loved. And I kept thinking, well, why, why is this happening? So I wanted to really understand this. So I ended up going on a really big journey all over the world from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne, 
to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus, looked at all sorts of different aspects of this problem, and I learned from them there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And they range really widely from some aspects of our tech to the food we eat, from the sleep we don't get to the hours we overwork. But, but crucially what I learned is your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by some really big and powerful forces. But once you understand those 12 forces, we can begin together to take them on. So it totally changed how I thought about the problem. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, You'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Yes, I mean, I had such so many big ahas in this because what we're going to discover in this conversation, and certainly what you'll discover when you dive into Stolen Focus yourself, is that this was done to us. This was legitimately done to us in a way that we didn't know was happening. And now that we know it's happening, feel that we can't stop it. So you open the book with a story that so many of us can relate to. I have been through this with, you know, other relatives. I know Stedman experiences with actually one of his nephews. He had taken him mm. on a trip and came back and was so frustrated. He said, I'll never do that again. I go, why not? He goes, because the whole time he was on his phone. What was the point? I, mm. I, I, you know, in the car, he was on the phone. I tried to take him to the golf course. He was on the phone. He just was on the phone. He was consumed by the phone. So you open the book talking about your nephew and a similar experience. Yeah, so, so it's my godson that I write about. His, I call him Adam in the book. And 
it's funny because when he was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. He would sing Viva Las Vegas and Suspicious Minds all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, it was particularly cute because he didn't know that Elvis had become a kind of cheesy cliche. So he was probably the last person in the history of Western civilization to do a totally sincere impression of Elvis. And when I would tuck him into bed at night, it would get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life again and again. Uh, and I like I tried to skip over the bit at the end where you know Elvis dies on the toilet and, and and I mentioned Graceland where Elvis had lived and and he looked at me really intensely and he said, "Will you take me to Graceland one day?" And I said, "Sure." The way you do with nine-year-olds, knowing next week it'll be Disneyland or Legoland or whatever. And and he carried on looking intensely. He said, "No, do you really promise? Do you swear one day you're going to take me to Graceland?" And I said, "I absolutely promise." And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. He dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, he was literally, this is not an exaggeration, literally spending all his waking hours on his phone or on his iPad. And his life was just this blur of Snapchat, YouTube, pornography. And it was like nothing kind of still or serious could get any traction in his mind. It was, it was almost like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat. And I remember one day we were sitting on my sofa in my apartment and I'd been trying to talk to him all day and he's a lovely, intelligent person and just nothing, I couldn't get anything going. And to be totally honest with you, Oprah, I wasn't that much better. I was staring at my own phone and I was, I was sitting there and I just thought, this, this is no way to live. And I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before and I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly, he didn't even remember this promise, obviously, but I reminded him and he said, I could see that it kind of woke something up in him, it enlivened something in him. And I said to him, look, let's go all over the South, right? Let's go to Graceland, let's go all over the South, but you've got to promise me one thing. You've got to promise that if we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day, because there's no point in us going if we're just going to stare at your phone the whole time. And he really thought about it and he made the promise. And I think it was two or three weeks later, we took off in New Orleans. And about two weeks after that, we arrived at the gates of Graceland. And when you get to Graceland now, this is even before COVID, there's no person to show you around. What happens is they give you an iPad and you put in some earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. And in every room you're in, it describes the room you're in. And there's a picture of the room on the iPad in front of you. So we're walking around and I notice what's happening is everyone is just staring at their iPad. And I'm trying to make eye contact with people to go like, oh, this is kind of funny. You know, we're the people who traveled thousands of miles and actually looked at the place we traveled to. And there was one guy I managed to make eye contact with, but then I realized he'd only looked away from the iPad to take out his phone and take a selfie. And so I'm getting more and more tense. And, and we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in, in Graceland. It's got loads of fake plants in it. And there was a Canadian couple next to us. I'll never forget them. And the husband turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing, look. If you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed, I thought he was kidding. And I turn and look at them and they're just swiping back and forth. And I, I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head. Cause look, we're, we're actually in the jungle room. You, you don't have to look at a digital representation of it. We're actually there. And they looked at me like I was completely insane and backed out the room. And I, and I turned to my godson to, to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner 
staring at Snapchat because from the moment we landed, he could not keep his promise. He literally couldn't do it. He was constantly looking at his phone. And I went up to him and I did that thing that's never a good idea with a teenager. I tried to grab the phone off him. And I said, look, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not present at the events of your own life. You're not showing up to your own existence. And he stormed off and he wandered around I wandered around Memphis on my own that night and I found him later on at the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying down the street. Of course it's the Heartbreak by... Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he was, it's got a guitar shaped swimming pool yeah. and he was sitting next and to you, it. You, you, look, can I just interrupt a second? The entire time I was reading this in the book, I'm hearing in my head, I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, <laughs> Tennessee. My traveling companion is nine years old. He's a child of my first marriage. We're going to Graceland. <laughs> uh, it's so true. That was the song. It was so funny. I got it was. I alternated between that and walking in Memphis. And when and when I found him by the swimming pool, where I think they were playing one of those songs, you know, I apologized to him, and he didn't look up. He carried on looking at Snapchat, but he said to me. I know something's really wrong, yeah. but I don't know what it is. That's and that's moment. when I thought, I need to investigate this subject. That was the moment. So I wondered, when I read that, I, it just gave me a little hope that a lot of these kids who are like your, your godson was, and, you know, Stedman's nephew, that they realize that something has happened to them, but they can't really articulate what it is that's kind of taken them over. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I think the important thing to understand is it's sometimes when people talk about this, they talk about, oh, there's something wrong with these kids. What's wrong with this generation? No, no, no. This is about what has been done to them, right? By much more powerful forces. This is about this is about really powerful invasive forces that are using extraordinarily sophisticated techniques to hack my godson, Stedman's, you know, the kid in Stedman's life and the kids who are listening to all these people. And we can deal with that, but we have to understand what's being done. And it's not that there's a flaw in them, right? There's a flaw in the environment that we've allowed to exist for them. And we can deal with that if we want to. Okay, so let's proceed through the book. You say uh, that people blame themselves when they realize that they're losing fo focus on work or their family. And I know millions of spouses and friends uh, all over the world well, you know, yeah, put your phone down, and then a second later, they pick up their own phone too. That's why you were saying <laughs> you're, you're, you're nearly as bad. And on page 12, you write, I found strong evidence that our collapsing ability to pay attention is not primarily a personal failing on my part or your part or your kid's part. It's being done by very powerful forces. This is a systemic problem. The truth is that you're living in a system that is pouring acid on your attention every day. Ah. Uh, I just so agree that we're all blaming ourselves that we're so easily distracted. So tell us what the acid is that's being poured on our attention every day. Well, there's, there's 12 forms of acid that are being poured on our attention every day. I'll give you an example of one that I think will be playing out for pretty much everyone listening today. I went to interview a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. I saw him at MIT where he's a professor. And he said to me, Look, you've got to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time scale you or me are going to see. You can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've been told 
a, a lie. We've been, we've been fed a kind of mass delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, older people as well, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time and they monitor them. And what they discovered is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between the tasks. What's that message on my phone? Exactly. What does it say on the TV there about Ukraine? What was the other message on Facebook? Wait, what did Oprah just ask me? So we're constantly switching and juggling. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The technical term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. You'll be much less competent. And that sounds when you hear it. I think a lot of people hear it and go, yeah, that's true, but that must be a small effect. This is a really big effect. I'll give you an example of a very small study that's backed by a wider body of evidence that helped me to understand this. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workers. And he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, but you've got to, at the same time, answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live. And at the end of it, the scientists tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had. To give you a sense of how big an effect that is, if you or me got stoned now, if we smoked cannabis together, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. Five points yeah. So at least in the short term, being chronically distracted is twice as bad for your intelligence as getting stoned. You'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than you would sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being constantly interrupted. Now, to be clear, it'd be better doing neither getting stoned nor being interrupted, obviously. Yes. But this is why Professor Miller said we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of being constantly interrupted. You say we touch our phones 2,617 times every 24 hours. The average American spends three hours and 15 minutes a day on their phones. An average American college student today switches tasks every 65 seconds, and the median amount of time they focus on any one thing is just 19 seconds. Another study found the average adult working in an office stays on task for just three minutes until they're distracted. And another study found office workers in the United States never get an hour of uninterrupted work in a typical day. So those are some pretty scary numbers. And yeah, I think the reason this is so important, Oprah, I mean, there are many reasons why this is so important, but one of them is, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when your ability to focus and pay attention breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. Your ability to solve your problems breaks down. When you can't pay attention, you just become significantly less competent. And if that goes on for long periods of time, as it's going on for long periods of time for lots of us now, after a while, you begin to feel sort of lost in your own life, right? Yes. Like you can't achieve the things you want to achieve. Does that ring true to you? Rings so true to me, and the line that really struck me is, we're missing depth. And if you have to mm -hmm. constantly send emails and be connected to everything, there is no time to reach depth. And so reading your book is the first time I realized, oh yes, we read differently when we're reading something online. We're kind of scanning and skimming, scanning and skimming, instead of actually when you're reading a book, you're 
taking the words in, absorbing what you're reading, the scanning and simming. And this idea of never reaching depth, it struck me because I said, you're going to have a society that's completely vapid. Yeah, as is in fact happening as we can see around us. <laughs> eventually, so you're going to have a society that's eventually vapid because nobody ever goes deep on anything. Well, one person who really helped me to think about this was an amazing man named Dr. James Williams, who used to be at the heart of Google and was so horrified by what they were doing to people's attention that he broke away and became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. And he explained to me that w there's one form of attention we tend to think about, but there's actually lots of layers to attention. So the form of attention that we normally think about is what he calls your spotlight. So your spotlight is your ability to achieve an immediate task. So let's say in this studio where I am, I know there's a fridge over there with Diet Coke in it. So let's say I walk over to that fridge to get some Diet Coke, and on the way I get a text message, I get distracted, I come back, I haven't got the Diet Coke, I'm like, oh wait, what, what did I do, right? Yeah. That's a disruption of my spotlight, right? That's happening to us all the time. That's a disruption to your spotlights. That's your ability to achieve an immediate short-term task. And mostly when we think about loss of attention, that's the thing we focus on. And that's important, but actually that's probably the most trivial. It's big and it matters, but it's probably the most trivial. The next layer up is what Dr. Williams calls your starlight. So your starlight isn't an immediate goal, like I'll get a Coke from the fridge. It's a longer term goal, like I want to start a business. I want to raise my child well, uh, whatever. I want to write a book, whatever it might be. And our, it's called your starlight because when you're lost in the desert, you're not sure where you're going. You look to the stars and you're like, ah, that's the direction I want to travel in. And that is being hugely disrupted. If you're being disrupted hour by hour, minute by minute, obviously as time goes by, your ability to achieve those longer term goals breaks down. But there's a layer above even that, which he calls your, your daylight. And that's your ability to even know what your goals are in the first place. How do you know you want to set up a business? How do you know what the business you want to set up is? How do you know what it means to be a good parent? How do you know what you want to write a book about? It's called your daylight because you can see a room most clearly when it's flooded with daylight. And I would argue, and I'm going beyond Dr. Williams here, there's a level even beyond that, which I think goes to what you're talking about, Oprah, which is, I would call it our stadium lights. And it's our ability to see each other and to achieve ah. collective goals. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're having an enormous crisis of democracy across the world at the same time as we're having this big crisis of attention. We can't pay attention to each other. We can't listen to each other. So this is why what starts with what seems like quite a small thing, oh, I wanted to get a Coke from the fridge and I got distracted. Actually, when you look at all these different layers, you realize this attention crisis is affecting every aspect of our lives. And it's why we've got to deal with the causes. And it's why I'm ultimately optimistic, because I saw places that have begun to deal with those problems. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. 
Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The thing that really also struck me was the B.F. Skinner experiment and his vision of how the human mind works. His insight that you can train living creatures to desperately crave arbitrary rewards has come to dominate our environment, you say. Many of us are like those birds in cages being made to perform a bizarre dance to get rewards, and all the while we imagine that we're choosing it for ourselves. So let's talk about B.F. Skinner, the pigeons, and the correlation between, say, Instagram. Yeah, so this explicitly inspired the people who designed Instagram and all the social media that that we use. So B.F. Skinner was a hugely influential psychologist from the 50s to the 90s when he died, the most famous psychologist of his generation. And he noticed something, a kind of, it seems almost like a trick when you first learn about it, which is you can take an animal, whether it's a pigeon, a pig, very sophisticated animals, and you can make it look like it's freely choosing to do something, but you can control and manipulate it so that it thinks it's making a choice on its own, but actually you guided it. So I'll give you an example. Okay, slow down here a bit, because slow down a bit, because I want people to really hear this. Because okay. at the beginning of our conversation, when Johan was saying, we were Johan and I were talking about this has been done to us. You need to understand how it's been done to us, how we've been manipulated and didn't even know we were being manipulated. Okay, slowly explain. <laughs> so there's an experiment. There's an experiment anyone watching could do at home if you're feeling a little bit cruel. You take a pigeon and you put it in a cage and you put one of those little machines that releases seed into the cage, attach it. And pigeons are constantly moving around. They're always making random movements. In advance, you choose a random movement that the pigeon's gonna make. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you choose, it lifts its left wing. Maybe you choose when it raises its head high. And whenever it does that, you release a little bit of seed into the cage. So wait for it to lift its left wing, release a little bit of seed. Then it'll do its random stuff again, wait again for it to raise its left arm. It'll get another little bit of seed. If you do that long enough, the pigeon will start lifting its left arm when, it, when it's hungry, right? But using that system of rewards, you can train animals to do incredibly sophisticated things. This is how they train the dolphins at SeaWorld, for example. You can train animals to do incredibly complex things. You can train a pig to vacuum a house using that system of rewards. You can train pigeons to play ping pong. You can train rabbits to pick coins up and put them into piggy banks. So this system of arbitrary rewards, if you look at that animal, it looks like it's just choosing to do what it wants to do. But actually it's been programmed by an external programmer. And that science that B.F. Skinner created, which is called behaviorism, explicitly guided the creation of social media. So they wanted, for reasons that I'm sure we'll explore more, they wanted to get people to use their, their apps as long as possible, as many hours as possible. So they built into them a system of arbitrary rewards, hearts, likes. So just like the pigeon is craving that seed, what do we start to crave? I feel it myself. What do we start to crave? The likes, the hearts. Look at any teenager in your life. If yeah. they post something and they don't get those rewards, they are devastated and they go back and they keep trying until they get the rewards. So this vision that B.F. Skinner had has been completely applied to all the teenagers of the world right now. And it works, right? Just like it works at training animals, it works at training humans. It's not the only thing that's in human psychology. There are other things we can activate that are much more positive, but it has absolutely played a key role in, in, in shaping our world. And so once you know that, 
just like your godson was saying, I know something's wrong, but I don't know what to do to fix it. So now we know we've been programmed for those rewards. We are now addicted. A lot of people are addicted to that whole reward system. And how do you begin to fix it? I know you did something really radical. You went through a three month detox back in 2018. I love this idea. Um, what did you learn about yourself in that detox from everything? Yeah, so uh, it's funny. I think there's, there's, there's sort of two layers to how we need to respond to this. I think of them as defense and offense. There are all sorts of things we need to do to defend ourselves and our kids at an individual level. And then we need to go on an offense against the forces that are doing this to us. But right at the start of writing Stolen Focus, I didn't know any of that. I thought the problem was in me, right? I basically had two stories about what had gone wrong. I thought, one, you're weak. You're not strong enough to resist the phone. Put it What's down. wrong with yeah. you? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just put it down. What's wrong with you? Get, get some willpower, right? I had a very negative dialogue with myself about my own phone use. And secondly, I thought, well, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me over, right? So because those were my two, I later learned those stories are ridiculously oversimplistic. But because those were my two stories, I thought, well, the solution here is really obvious. I'll exercise my willpower and I'll leave my phone behind. So I went to a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, which is a little kind of gay resort town. For people who've never been there, it's the kind of place where more than one person makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing <laughs> songs about sex acts so obscene I won't say them in front of Oprah, right? Um, it's a great place. Uh, so I went there for three months. I left my, I had, I, I bought a, extremely cheap and weird phone called the Jitterbug, which cannot get onto the internet. It's designed for very elderly people. It has an emergency button. If you fall over, it'll call the nearest hospital, which I thought, okay, that's handy. And I took my friend Imtiaz's broken laptop, which could not get onto the internet. And I had three months completely offline. And there were lots of ups and downs and lots of things I learned. But the thing that most amazed me is, you know, when I went, I was nearly 40. And I thought, well, Maybe I just got older. Maybe my, maybe my attention is getting worse because I'm getting older. My attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could read books for eight hours a day. I could focus on long conversations with people, really bond with them. I was stunned by how much my attention came back. I later realized there were actually lots of things that changed for me in Provincetown that didn't just include removing myself from the tech. I was much less stressed. I slept much more. I ate much better than I normally do because there's no McDonald's in Provincetown. Mm -hmm. So there were a whole range of things that changed for me. But the main thing I learned is, wow, this thing that I thought was a flaw in me, just by changing my environment, went away. How did you reconcile your conflicting feelings though when you went in and came out and having to let go of all of your you know, contact with the outside world? How did you reconcile your conflicting feelings? I mean, there were so many things about that. You know, I remember initially I felt this tremendous relief and I remember I would, every now and then I'd be walking around and I, and I would say to myself, what's this thing I feel? I'm feeling something, I can't name it. And then I would go, oh, you're calm. <laughs> I, I realized I hadn't been calm <laughs> in such a long time, right? And I, but then so I, after this initial kind of bliss and decompression, I remember it was about maybe three or four weeks in, I was walking down the beach in Provincetown and I saw that thing that, I, that I'd seen in Graceland and everywhere, which drives me crazy. Provincetown is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And people were just not looking at it. They were just using it as a backdrop for a selfie and then, you know, look, and then looking down at their phone more. But this time, instead of kind of going, oh, you're, 
you're not present in your life, you know, this is no way to live. I wanted to run up to them and go, give me that phone, me, give it to me, give it to me. Because like BF Skinner's pigeons, I had spent 15 years just all throughout the day getting the kind of thin, insistent signals of the internet, right? These rewards, these likes, these retweets. And when they were gone, this is a very pretentious way of putting it, but the French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir said that when she became an atheist, it was like the world had gone silent. And that's how I felt when I was deprived of the internet, right? Suddenly it felt like the world had gone silent. And no normal social interaction, even if it's really friendly, is gonna flood you with hearts and likes. That would be a very weird interaction with someone you'd just met. And so I realized when you separate yourself from this stuff, and that's not the sustainable long-term solution, I know we'll get to the longer-term solutions, but when you separate yourself from this stuff, it creates a vacuum. And that vacuum will initially give you relief, but then you have to fill that vacuum. And that's when I started to go back to what I had learned about the science of, of flow states. And, and, and that was one of the things I used to, to fill my kind of vacuum. Let's talk about the science of flow state and what it means to be in flow. A flow state is when you're doing something and you just really get into it. And yep. time falls away and your sense of ego falls away. What, what is it, that, I'm curious, what, does, what gives you a sense of flow, Oprah? Uh, reading does that for me. Like I can get absorbed in a book. Walking with my dogs, you know, up a path can do that for me. Uh, you know, as you were even saying that and as I was reading um, in Stolen Focus, I was thinking what you really want is your life in flow. You don't want just flow mm. moments. You, you want to mm. lean into a life that is always in flow. So I wake up in the morning trying to get in flow, intentionally <clears throat> leaning into mm. what that's gonna be for me for the day. That's so wise. I wish I did. you're wiser than I did. It took me a much longer time to, to realize that. And it was so interesting because the way one rock climber put it is when you're in flow, it's like you are the rock you're climbing. And different people get into flow doing different things. Some people, it might be making bagels. Some people, it might be brain surgery. Um, for me, like you, it's reading, writing. But, and flow is really important. The science of flow is really important for thinking about attention because flow is both the deepest form of attention that you can provide and once you get into it, it's the easiest form of attention to provide. Right. It's not like, you know, learning. It. You're carried exactly. by it. You're carried by it. You're like a wave. A, a wave. You're floating on it. Yes, 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 yes. Exactly. It's not like learning facts for an exam. You're like, oh, what year did the Civil War right. end? It's not like that. So obviously I wanted to figure out, okay, if this is a gusher of attention that exists inside all of us, how do we activate it? Where do we drill to get that gusher of attention? So, um, I went after I left Provincetown to interview Professor Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, you have no idea how long it took me to learn how to say his name, uh, who was the man who invented the phrase and pioneered the science of flow states, one of the most important psychologists of the last century, I would argue. Uh, I went to interview him in Claremont, California. I think I did the last interview he ever did because sadly he, he died soon afterwards. And Professor Csikszentmihalyi learned a huge amount about flow, but I think for anyone listening, there's three things I took away that I think are really important. But if you want to maximize your chances of getting into a flow state, there's three things you can do. There's no guarantee, but it'll massively increase the odds. The first is you've got to narrow down to one goal. I want to climb this rock. I want to paint this canvas. I want to write this chapter. One thing, if you're being interrupted, if you're trying to monitor your text at the same time, you're trying to do loads of things at the same time, you'll never get into flow. Correct. Got, it requires all your attention. Secondly, you've got to choose a goal that is meaningful to you, deeply meaningful. If, you, if you're trying to pay attention or flow into something that isn't meaningful to you, your attention will just slip and slide off it. So one person might get into flow trying to climb a rock. 
I'm never going to get into flow climbing a rock. I'll be terrified. I'll fall off. It'll be awful, right? Yeah, yeah. So different people have different things. Um, it's got to be meaningful. And thirdly, and this one seems counterintuitive, but I think it, you really embody a lot of this wisdom, Oprah. It really helps if you push yourself to the edge of your comfort zone. If you do something that's at the edge of your ability. So let's say that you're a medium talent rock climber, right? You don't want to just try and climb over a garden wall. It's too easy. Equally, you don't want to suddenly tomorrow try and climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It's too much. You want to climb a slightly higher and harder rock face than the one you climbed last time. Flow begins at the edge of your comfort zone. When you push yourself to the edge of your abilities, but not beyond them, you can push yourself too far. Um, that's where flow originates. So if you do these three things, choose one goal and set aside all your other goals for a while. Make sure it's a meaningful goal for you and choose a goal at the edge of your comfort zone. That is how you get into flow. So in Provincetown, when I had been in this sense of like, oh, I want my phone back. I, I want all these distractions back. I can't cope with this vacuum. I thought, okay, what could I do that's, that's flow? Okay, there was a kind of writing that I'd wanted to do for a long time, which was writing fiction. Uh, that's at the edge of my comfort zone, right? It's possibly beyond my abilities as well, I'm not sure. But, <laughs> so I, I spent a lot of time doing that. And once I got into that flow state, I found that that anxiety, that desperate craving for the, the kind of crappy rewards of hearts and likes really faded away because I was doing something that was meaningful to me. Well, you know, just hearing you talk about it this way, because I, I've actually thought of it different ways. Like when you are fully 100% present. And I, as I was reading Stolen Focus, I was thinking, yes, I, I've had moments where I was literally at the sink washing dishes and was so fully present with washing dishes mm. that I felt like this overwhelming sense of happiness or just walking up a hill with my dogs. But at the very first time I ever actually remembered that feeling of being one with the, was walking, was when I had run, I was training for marathon and I had done my first 10 miles. So I pushed myself up until that point, I'd only mm. done like seven miles. And the first day I remembered so vividly running 10 miles at one point, I felt like the foot on the pavement and the pavement were one. Like the pavement mm. was like rising up to me. <laughs> I love that. The pavement was writhing and my, I was literally in flow with the pavement. Mm. I mean, I, yeah. Never had had that experience before, and only several other times running afterwards did, did I have that feeling. But I, I specifically understand exactly what you're talking about, being in flow. And I've heard, first of all, musicians talk about this a lot, heard people who are you know, artists in other areas, literally painting, reach a level of mm. you know, expression that they hadn't before, and they feel that that is coming from a place even greater than themselves, you know, when you're in the flow of it that flow state. Totally. Oh, I think you put it better than I could. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't. You really articulated it beautifully in the book. Let's call, talk about what you call the deep forces at work, which are damaging our ability to pay attention. You describe one of them as the speed at which our brain is taking in and filtering information. You say it's greater than any other generation. How so? So we, when you try and do something, everyone will have had this, everyone will have had this experience. When you try and do something really fast, there's just a limit to how much information you can process. The way Professor Suna Lehman, who's in Copenhagen, who did the first study that proved that collective attention really is shrinking, put it to me, is he said, you know, it's like we're being sprayed with a fire hose all the time, right? And I realized what I was doing in Provincetown 
was for the first time in my adult life, it's like I was sipping information at the speed at which I could absorb it, right? And then I would just step back from it for a while. And then I would come back and sip a little bit more. It was like, instead of being drenched with information, I was absorbing it at the rate I, I couldn't. So I was obviously trying to think, well, how can I integrate that into my life when I leave this place, which obviously I know we'll, we'll get to, but it's funny about slowness, Oprah. There's a story, I don't think I've ever told you this, but the, um, so the Professor Guy Claxton, who's at the University of Winchester, has done this interesting research that shows he studied all sorts of slow practices like meditation, yoga, and he's shown that if you integrate a slow practice into your day, that improves your attention, not just when you're doing those things, but for the rest of the day. And I wanted to think about this more. So I went to a place that you've been to called Fairfield, Iowa, which for yes. people who don't know is a town where everyone meditates, right? Meditates, right? yes. <laughs> So I went there and had this funny experience because um, so the only rush hour they have in Fairfield, Iowa is when everyone goes to meditate at 7 a.m. and then everyone goes to meditate again, at, I think it's 7 p.m. And they've got these huge golden domes and I wanted to go in while they were meditating. And they said to me, only one outsider has ever been allowed to come in and meditate with us. And that was Oprah. And you are not Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. They no, didn't let you was, in? They said, they said, uh, they said, if you come back with Oprah, we might let you in. So oh, my gosh. We should go in. back, Johan. We should go back. <laughs> I actually thought that was one of my great life experiences. I shall never huh. forget it because I had visited a school earlier in the day where all the kids meditated. And this I met like a fifth grader who said to me, I shall never forget, you know, my brother is so annoying to me. But since I started meditating, I can... I can observe him being annoying without being attached huh. to reacting to his annoyance. Wow. Says a fifth grader <laughs> to me. I mean, what is going on in this town? I thought it was fantastic. That's so, and that's so fascinating because in Provincetown, I, I built, I did yoga for the first time. I said to my yoga teacher, the very first lesson we had, I said, this is going to be like teaching yoga to Stephen Hawking, right? I am so immobile. This is not going to be. And by the end, I was doing like headstands. But it was so interesting to me because I remember at the end of, coming back to those deeper forces you're asking about, I remember at the end of my time in Provincetown, the very last day I went to this place called Long Point, which is kind of by the lighthouse and it looks out over the whole of Provincetown. And I was staring out and I thought, this has been amazing. I'm never going to go back to the way that I was before, right? Never. Why would I go back? And the next day I went back to Boston, I got my laptop and my phone back. And within a month, I was 80% back to where I've been. Oh. And, I, and, I, and I was so angry with myself. I said, how can I build this into my life? And I only really understood what had gone wrong. When I went to interview Dr. James Williams, who I mentioned before, I went to interview him in Moscow. He, he lives there because his wife uh, works for the World Health Organization. And he said to me, the mistake you've made, Johan, is it's fine to make personal changes. It's good, it's important. But he said, what you've done in Provincetown is it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? Now, I'm not against gas masks. If I lived in Beijing, I'd definitely wear a gas mask. But a gas mask is not the solution to air pollution. We, and he said to me, we need to deal with this problem at the root. We need to deal with the factors that are actually doing this to me. So it's doing this to me, you, and everyone else. And so it took me a long time to absorb that lesson, to really understand that. But I really realized, like I mentioned a little bit before, there's got to be two levels to how we deal with all the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus, right? Defense, so offense. 
Exactly. So you think about so this can sound a bit abstract. So I'll give you a co couple of concrete examples if that's okay. So give me an example of a defense, right? I've got it here. I brought it. This is a K safe. So the way it works is you take off the. Do you have one, Oprah? No, I had only okay, heard I'm about it when I read about it in Stolen Focus. Okay, I'm sending you one. So. Yeah, I swear I'm not getting commission from these people either. So you take off the lid, as you see, you put in your phone, you put the lid on, you turn that dial at the top, and it locks your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I will not sit down and watch a film with my boyfriend unless we both imprison our phones. I will not have my friends around for dinner unless we lock our phones away. Um, I use it for four hours a day so I can write and get a sense of focus. And also on my laptop, I have an app called Freedom that cuts me off in the entire internet as well. So that's an example, one of dozens that I give in the book of individual things we can do to protect ourselves and our children. But I want to be really well, you honest you actually with lock it and you said, uh, in the book, I remember you saying, recall you saying that you would have to use a hammer and whatever yeah. to, to get it out. You can't get it out. Yeah, so yeah you'd have because to smash it. And you, you do that because if you just say, I'm going to go put my phone down, I'm not going to touch it, that doesn't work. You got to lock well, it's, it away. It's, it, this is a, the science of this is called, pre, the scientific term for this is pre-commitment. So we all have things we want to do in the future, but we know we might crack. So for me, it's Pringles, right? If I, I, if Pringles are in front of me, I will inhale them, right? I cannot, I cannot stop myself. So my form of pre-commitment is I will never buy Pringles in the supermarket and bring them into my home, right? Because the temptation is to go, I'll buy these Pringles, I'll put them in and I'll eat them in three days time. But I know if I wake up at 2 a.m., those Pringles are getting eaten, right? So my form of pre-commitment- You eat the sleeve, the sleeve is gone, it's gone. <laughs> it's just gone, right? Gone. My nephew recently said to me that I look uncannily like the, the man on the Pringles box, which is just a Pringle with a human face. But, um, but so that, so it's a form of pre-commitment. I know, I can say now, you know what, in an hour's time, I'm gonna put my phone away for three hours, I don't wanna look at it. But I know in 40 minutes, I'm gonna go, ah, oh, there was that one email, I'll just do that really quickly. And then I open my email and suddenly I'm back and I'm like, oh no, another person's messaging me and another person. So I go through dozens of things. These are forms of defense. And obviously a lot of the book is about our kids. And I go through lots of things that we can do to protect our kids as well. But I wanna be really truthful with people. I'm passionately in favor of these individual changes. They will significantly improve your attention. But they will only get us so far. Because It's kind of like wearing a, a gas mask in Beijing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Or to give another metaphor, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning over and going, hey buddy, you might wanna learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you wanna go, yeah, I'll learn to meditate, that's hugely important, but you need to stop pouring itching powder on me, right? And um, I'll give you, and again, this can sound a bit fancy when I say we've gotta go on offense against the forces that are doing this to us. But I'll give you a concrete example that played out in your childhood and adolescence, Oprah, um, and that lots of people listening will remember. So it used to be that the standard form of gasoline in the United States and across the world was leaded gasoline. And it used to be that people painted their homes with leaded paint, right? In fact, uh, Mississippi, where you were born, is, was one of the centers of exposing people to lead, right? And it was discovered by scientists that if you're exposed to lead, it really harms your brain and it particularly harms children's ability to focus and pay attention. So what happened? A group of ordinary moms, they were mostly what we called back then housewives, banded together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing the lead industry to harm our children's brains. Why, this is crazy. And it's important to notice what those mothers didn't say. They didn't say, so let's ban all gasoline. 
They didn't say, say, let's ban all paint, right? That would have been foolish. They said, let's ban the specific elements in the lead and in the paint that are harming our children's brains. And these mothers, they fought like hell for their children. And it took years. And they won. Everyone listening will know, we don't have leaded gasoline anymore. We don't have leaded paint. And to me, this is a really great model. In addition to all the individual things that we need to do that I write about in the book, those mothers identified a factor in the environment that was harming their attention and their kids' attention, and they campaigned and fought together to get that thing out of the environment. Now, there are loads of things today that are harming our attention that we can use that model for, right? You know, the temptation is to go, this is what I thought at the start, oh, you know, the phone did this to us. But what I learned when I went and interviewed people in Silicon Valley who'd been at the absolute heart of designing the apps that your kids and people all over the world are using, what they explained to me is it's not the tech itself, the tech is currently designed for a specific reason to maximally invade our attention. There's an equivalent to the lead in the lead paint at the moment in our technology that's designed to harm our attention. And together we can deal with that, those factors that are harming our attention. Because one of the things that you say that struck me is that you could have uh, your phone identify for you friends in the area who you could stop and have a drink with or stop and have a conversation with or stop and we tech is capable of doing that tech is capable of doing things to bring us closer together that would allow us to have conversations one-on-one -on -one with each other but the but the issue now is that nobody who is creating the tech wants you to leave the tech they want you to stay tied to the tech so any time away from the tech spending with your friend is not what they want us to do. Exactly. So the important thing to understand is why that's happening and how we can fix it. Because obviously my book is, I'm not someone who likes to just describe problems, right? It's really important to me that we get solutions. Solutions. And I think there's a solution to this. So it's important to understand that, that, that thing you're saying, which you've just put so well. So at the moment, all social media works on one particular business model. And it, it's really simple. Anyone listening, please don't do it right now. But if you pick up your phone and you open Facebook or TikTok or Twitter or any of the mainstream social media apps, those companies immediately start to make money out of you. And they make money out of you in two ways. First way is really obvious. You see ads. OK, everyone knows how that works. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by the artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are. So let's say that on social media you indicate that you like, I don't know, Bette Midler, Donald Trump, and you tell your mom you just bought some diapers. Okay, so it's gonna figure out, if you like Bette Midler and you're a man, you're probably gay. No disrespect to any straight men who like Bette Midler, I've never met you. Uh, secondly, if you like Donald Trump, you're probably conservative. If you're talking about buying diapers, you've probably just had a baby. It's gathering tens of thousands of points of information like this. It's building up a very detailed profile of you. Now, partly, that's because you are not the customer of social media. You are the product they sell to advertisers. So they're building up this information okay, so advertisers can target you. This is not if you're on social media. This is if you've written an email to your mother about yeah. diapers. This is Exactly. Not, this is if you're on this, Gmail. Yeah. Gmail. This is if you're on Gmail. This doesn't mean you've gone on Facebook to have this conversation. So I was going to ask you, we all hear, hear about this, what you're talking about a lot. When you email or text a friend about something, and next thing you know, an ad pops up for that very thing, like a vacation, or you're saying a product like diapers. So a lot of people have said, well, you know, the phones are listening to us, or our e emails are being tracked. Are they? What? 
Well, it's that they're building on. up profile. It's that they're building up profiles of you, and they're doing that for two reasons. One is to sell. And it means they know your about... profile so well. They know your. Pro yeah. It's not like they're watching you, but they know your profile so well that that's why that ad pops up. Yeah. Imagine if I knew tens of thousands of things about you. And then I try to figure out what you might want next, right? So you, they, they're figuring out what you want, what, what advertisers might promote to you. But they're also, crucially, figuring out what the weaknesses in your attention are so they can keep you scrolling. So the, the longer you scroll and the more often you pick up your phone, the more money they make from these two revenue streams. And every time you put down your phone or your kid puts down their phone, that revenue stream disappears. So, and this is what they say, right? This is, the, this is what they say. This is not some external criticism. This is what the people who designed these things admit. All of their algorithms, all of this genius in Silicon Valley is currently geared towards one thing, which is figuring out how, how can we get you and your kids to pick up your phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. But what was really fascinating to me, spending lots of time with people in Silicon Valley who'd been, been at the heart of the machine, was they said to me, social media doesn't have to work this way, right? Just like we've got gasoline that doesn't have lead in it, just like we've got paint that doesn't have lead in it, we can have all the social media we currently have, but have it designed not to hack our attention, but to heal our attention. And they told me how we can do that. So for example, Aza Raskin, who invented a key part of how the internet works, his dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. Aza said to me that there was an equivalent to the lead in the lead paint. He said, look, it's very simple. If you want to solve this aspect of the attention crisis, you've got to ban the current business model. Just say a business model that is based upon tracking you, surveilling you secretly to figure out the weaknesses in your attention. That is inhuman, it's like lead in lead paint, we won't You call it, it surveillance capitalism. So this is a term that comes from Professor Shoshana Zuboff, who's a wonderful Harvard professor who coined this, this phrase to describe this. And I remember when lots of people, Aza wasn't the only one, lots of people in Silicon Valley said this to me, it took me a long time to absorb what they were saying. I kept saying, well, okay, well, hang on a minute. Let's imagine we do that, right? Let's imagine we ban surveillance capitalism. We ban that current business model. And the next day I open Facebook, would it say, sorry guys, we've all gone fishing? He said, of course not. What would happen is those companies would have to move to a different business model. And almost everyone listening has an experience of the two alternatives, right? So one is subscription. Really simple, we all know how that works. Everyone knows how Netflix and HBO work. You pay a certain amount, you get access. Or alternatively, think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had feces in the street, people got cholera. So what did we do? We all paid to build the sewers and we all own the sewers together, right? Anyone listening, you own the sewers in the town where you live. Now it may be that like we own the sewage pipes together we might want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention and for our politics. But whatever different model we adopt, the important thing to understand is all the incentives change. At the moment, because of the current business model, all the incentives are to hack and invade your attention, to relentlessly hack and invade your attention. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook said, we designed Facebook to maximally invade your attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' brains. But if you move to these different models, all the incentives are different. Suddenly they're not thinking, how do we train Oprah to pick up her phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible? Suddenly they're saying, what does Oprah want? Oh, turns out Oprah wants to be able to meet up with her friends. Why do we decide face, design Facebook to tell her which of her friends are nearby and would like to meet up? 
oh, it turns out Oprah wants to be able to pay attention. Let's design Facebook to heal her attention, not hack her attention. This is 100% technologically uh, possible, right? The people I met in Silicon Valley could design that in a week. The problem is that the incentives are not there at the moment, but we can get those incentives there just like, you know, the social media companies will never do this on their own. Just like the lead industry was never gonna go, you know what guys, I think we've made enough money. Let's stop poisoning kids' brains, right? That's not how it works, right? They had to be made to do it by those mothers fighting for it. In the same way, we can band together and fight to get the specific aspects that are harming our and our kids' attention out of the environment. But the reason this is so important at the moment, I think, is right now we're in a race, right? On one side of the race, if you look at many of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention, lots of them are poised to become much stronger in the coming years. Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is to the girls at your school in South Africa than Facebook yes. was. Okay, now imagine the next crack-like iteration of Facebook that will occur in the metaverse. So that's one side of the race. These forces are poised to invade us more. And also you say COVID showed us a sneak peek because uh, into what our world's gonna become because one expert told you that all the Zoom meetings mean more screens, more stress. Same exactly. On, on the right. other side of that race, there's got to be a movement of all of us saying to all these forces that are doing this to us, no, no, you don't get to do this to us. No, you don't get to do this to our children. No, this is not a good life. We choose a life where we can focus. We choose a life where our children can play outside. We choose a life where we can think deeply. But it requires a shift in psychology, right? There are all sorts of things we have to do as individuals. Listen, we could talk all day about this. And as I said, we are not going to be able to get through the entire book. We've been talking about some of the problems. And if you'll join us in part two, we shall start delving into the solutions because you didn't just write a book exposing everything that's wrong. You actually talk about what we can do to unmake this problem. So join us again, part two, for Stolen Focus and Johan Hari. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.